Hello, and welcome to our COVID Minutes podcast series from UT Health San Antonio. I'm Dr. Jan Patterson, Professor of Medicine Infectious Diseases and Associate Dean for Quality and Lifelong Learning. Our goal is to bring you timely and concise insights and updates on COVID-19 by interviewing our UT Health faculty experts who are very involved in COVID response. These on-demand podcasts are aimed at healthcare professionals and are ideal for clinicians on the go and others who want to stay up to date. Today, we're having a conversation with Dr. Ruth Berggren, Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases, and Director of the Center for Medical Humanities and Ethics at the Lozano Long School of Medicine. We're going to be talking about outpatient strategies for the patient with COVID-19. So Dr. Berggren, we've seen some great strides in treatment for hospitalized patients with moderate to severe COVID, but no FDA approved oral therapies for COVID-19 here in the US. We do now have monoclonal antibody preparations that can be used, bamlanivimab, the Lilly monoclonal, casirivimab, I'm gonna stumble over that and just leave it like that, and imdevimab, uh, the Regeneron antibody cocktail, which um, obviously everybody says antibody cocktail, so you don't have to say the names. And these are approved for patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are at least 12 years of age, weigh at least 40 kilograms, and are at high risk of progressing to severe uh, COVID-19 or hospitalization. So that includes patients over 65, those who have underlying medical conditions such as BMI of 35 or higher, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, immunosuppression, and so forth. Um, and in studies, um, hospitalizations and emergency room visits decreased from nine to 10% in the placebo groups to 3% in the monoclonal antibody groups in high-risk patients. These agents should be administered as soon as feasible after the positive viral test and within 10 days of symptoms. So this seems to be good news, seems to be a wonderful advance for outpatient therapy. Are there any downsides? Well, Jen, I agree, it really is good news. That's a great reduction in the number of people that have to go to the emergency room. However, um, these are not solving all of our problems and their challenges, like these drugs have to be administered intravenously it requires an hour infusion time plus an hour of monitoring after that infusion. And so that can add up to an, about a three hour episode of care really. And uh, we, ha we do have to have folks be in a monitored setting because of the side effects that can include things like fever and chills, which may be mild, but more severe side effects like hives or even anaphylaxis can rarely happen as well. So it really must be done in a monitored healthcare setting. And don't forget, these patients are by definition in the very most contagious phase of their COVID-19 infection. And we don't want them to be in our infusion centers where there are many immunosuppressed patients who would be quite vulnerable should they get infected. Emergency rooms are also extremely busy right now during the surge. Um, so that's tough for them to be the referral center. So our health systems here are looking for options about where uh, people with COVID can uh, come to a center where they are monitored and safely get the drug. And then there's the fact that these drugs are in limited supply. Um, they're on allocation for the government based on state and local needs. 
Right, so there's very little available. Okay, so it's an advance, but with some major limitations. So let's talk about some things that can be done at home. What equipment or supplies do you recommend for people and what are some general recommendations? I think the first issue is to set up the environment, right? The infected person needs to isolate and they, they've got to do it um, to the extent possible in a way that prevents the rest of their family from getting infected. And I would say if there's an elderly person in the home or someone with known comorbidities that puts them especially at risk, they should make extra special efforts to uh, protect that individual person. So when possible, the infected person needs to be using their own bathroom. Certainly they should be masked when they're around other members of the family and they should be reminding everyone about hand washing and surface cleansing. Um, now, how long should they isolate? I remind everyone that the CDC recommends the isolation begin at the onset of symptoms carried forward for 10 days and that needs to include a 24 hour period with taking no antipyretics where there is no fever. So it's 10 days that includes, or 10 days plus, uh, a 24-hour period of no fever. So because of all of these um, monitoring needs, there's some equipment that we want people to think about. So the first would be a thermometer. We just explained why. Um, then a pulse oximeter to monitor oxygen levels. And finally, a home blood pressure cuff. People who smoke should quit smoking. If they vape, they should quit vaping. That may be very difficult, but there are nicotine replacement programs that people can access through advice from their physician. But this is really a time when you wanna maximize your ability to heal and not do something harmful like cigarette smoking. Um, we encourage everybody to hydrate. Uh, that's something that when you're feeling sick, you probably need to remind yourself to do and um, varying your fluids to include uh, fluids that have electrolytes in them and not just plain water is a really good idea for most effective hydration. And then finally, um, there may be an impulse to just really be immobile in the bed, um, but that's not good for you either. And you wanna get up and walk around, um, not lose all of your strength and not become so profoundly deconditioned that you then become, have a, a risk of falling when you get up to go to the bathroom. Okay, great. That's really good advice. Now, there's been some discussion about supplements, certain supplements, and also some off-label uses of over-the-counter medications and other medications. And so I'll just say from here on out, disclaimer, we're going to talk about off-label uses of medications and supplements, because as we've said, there's no FDA-approved oral meds for COVID. And none are recommended in the NIH or Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines outside of clinical trials. So first of all, what do you think about discussing these kinds of options with patients? Yeah, Jan, I think it's really important that we recall that we are healers first and foremost. We are here to provide the best scientific evidence that's available to help people heal. But healing um, has more to it, right, than, than just uh, applying scientific evidence with rigor. And um, when we offer people safe, supplemental things that they can do that might make them feel better and that might support their recovery, I think we are doing this in the service of healing. The important thing 
is that there be a balance and that people understand if we're recommending something that is off-label, they should understand the level of evidence that is lacking. And also they should understand some of the reasons why a particular supplement is thought to potentially be helpful. So I think when all of that is disclosed um, and that people have clear instructions about how these supplements can be used, I think this is potentially in the service of healing. And if we don't do it, Jan, I worry that people will feel so compelled to reach for something else because of the need to do something rather than doing nothing. I worry that they will reach for um, other drugs that um, do require prescriptions, that they may persuade a physician or pressure a physician into prescribing something that's been shown to be harmful. Uh, so I think that by providing information about supplements that are generally regarded as safe, together with disclosures about what we do and don't know, I think is helpful and is in the service of healing. Great. Those are really good points. So are there some supplements that you recommend? Well, uh, let's start with zinc. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listening audience has heard about zinc. This is a very important micronutrient that has global significance. It has been studied in a lot of settings um, and has been shown to be life-saving. For instance, when, we, when it is added to oral rehydration uh, in treating diarrheal illness in children in, in low-income countries, there's a very strong World Health Organization guidelines supporting the use of zinc in that setting, and it's been clearly shown to reduce mortality. Well, what about in the setting that we're interested in, which is coronavirus infection? It turns out that for years we've had data about the value um, and the salutary effect of using zinc lozenges for people that are infected with the common cold type of coronaviruses. There, there have been at least seven randomized trials looking at zinc acetate and zinc gluconate lozenges. And it has been shown that the duration of common colds can be shortened on average by about 33%. Some of them were even stronger than that. Um, so uh, the idea of using a lozenge in the setting of an upper respiratory infection um, comes from the fact that it's the free zinc ions in the oropharyngeal reason, region that are thought to exert um, their antiviral effect. And it's not clear and has not been studied whether oral ingestion of oral supplements, such as you can buy in capsule or pill form, uh, would be as effective. And um, it is important that people not exceed recommended dosages. And it is known that dosages high dosages, like over 100 milligrams, those clearly don't benefit people and could lead to some side effects. And in general, we would not recommend that people exceed 40 milligrams in a given day and don't exceed the daily zinc recommendation unless you are discussing this with a physician and have the advice of a primary care doctor. So the zinc lozenges in particular, because they may have a local protective effect and they're already known to, to decrease the duration and severity of the common cold. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you mentioned not exceeding, you know, not, not exceeding a certain amount of zinc, not taking high doses. Are there any downsides over the long term? The main one would be um, high dose zinc for a long time can actually impair your copper absorption and together uh, that can lead to anemia as well as some serious neurological side effects. So, but you would have to be taking high doses of zinc for a long time 
um, in order to see that sort of thing. Another common issue is um, not wanting to interfere with absorptions of other necessary medications. Many people have hypothyroidism and are taking some sort of uh, thyroid uh, replacement. And it is known that zinc ingested at the same time as thyroid hormone replacement can impair the absorption. So if that were the case, um, the person should take their thyroid medication many hours um, before taking a zinc supplement or using a zinc lozenge. All right, good. And it looks like another thing we might get at the drugstore that could help is vitamin D. Vitamin D en enhances the immune system, but it's also an immunomodulator and may reduce inflammatory response from SARS-CoV-2. Uh, there's also been studies that have shown that those with vitamin D deficiency have had worse outcomes in COVID-19. So I think of this as maybe being especially helpful for people who are at risk of vitamin D deficiency that are also at risk for poor outcomes from COVID-19, like the elderly and those with melanin-rich skin. And so a safe dose of 2,000 international units a day seems very reasonable. What else at the drugstore might be beneficial? Well, there's some interesting data about the sleep supplement melatonin. This is a naturally occurring sleep hormone. Um, it has been available on the market literally for decades. Oftentimes people will use it as a sleep aid or in advance of say transatlantic flights when they know that their sleep-wake cycle is going to be disrupted. But it turns out that melatonin does more than just make you sleepy. It's actually a powerful antioxidant with a lot of anti-inflammatory properties that look really interesting on the biochemical and cellular level. And so there could be other uses. And we know that some of the people who are most at risk for doing poorly with COVID-19 infection are older adults. And these very people, the older adults, um, have lower amounts of their naturally occurring melatonin that's being produced. So it seems like a pretty natural uh, intervention to provide an older adult who may have low melatonin to begin with, with a physiologic replacement of this naturally occurring sleep hormone. And then one might hope that there would be some salutary effects related to decreasing inflammation. It turns out that there are quite a few clinical trials ongoing with melatonin, including uh, preventive trials where healthcare workers in Spain are taking low-dose melatonin uh, preemptively, and they're monitoring them prospectively to see who, who gets infected with COVID and, and if they get infected, if they have a, a lower risk of progressing to more severe disease. Um, melatonin is also being commonly used right now by clinicians who are admitting COVID patients to the hospital uh, rather than um, prescribing some other form of sleep aid. Um, many clinicians are providing uh, prescribing standard doses of melatonin at bedtime for COVID patients in the hospital. So there are a variety of preparations out there and a variety of doses. Um, Over-the-counter doses go as high as uh, 10 milligram uh, dissolving tablets in your mouth, but there's liquid forms. And so um, we, we would recommend a relatively low dose and, and three milligrams seems about right. It is on the low end of the range that's being studied in clinical trials right now. Very, very few 
side effects of this. Obviously, you want to take it at bedtime. It could cause grogginess. It's not something you'd take and then get in a car and go for a long drive. Those are all good points, and, and the clinical trials will be of interest. Uh, I should mention that, that uh, there are clinical trials for vitamin D as well, for pre prevention as well as treatment. A uh, good point about the dose, um, you know, the dose I think that's most commonly used is the three milligrams. Some people may be a little groggy in the morning after that, and so if they need a lower dose, you can go to the liquid form and start with a 0.3 milligram dose uh, in the liquid form. Um, another side effect that uh, has been noted is vivid dreams, and that's not usually a limiting side effect in most people, but just something to be aware of uh, for people to know about. Okay, so let's shift now to, to some prescription drugs. Prescription drugs that are already used for other indications. This is all off-label use that we're talking about. There's been a lot of discussion about hydroxychloroquine since the beginning of the pandemic. So what is the data on hydroxychloroquine, Dr. Berger? Well, there was really quite a bit of initial excitement about this drug. I had um, relatives in my family who are physicians who were calling me up and inquiring as to whether I was uh, begin prescribing it or stocking it for my own family. Um, but after the initial excitement, uh, more and more and more evidence has accrued that is not in, not in silica or in vitro, it is in humans. Um, and there have now been published in good peer review literature, a number of randomized controlled trials addressing not just severe disease, but also mild to moderate disease and also trials in people who are well using hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis. So all three of those scenarios have been looked at in humans. Some of them, I would say many of them, have been done in combination with the antimicrobial azithromycin given in combination. Um, and really all of the well-conducted studies have shown no benefit. There's, there's extraordinary accumulation of data, especially the, the retrospective studies, um, you know, large cohorts of patients in the VA who were taking hydroxychloroquine for some um, autoimmune or inflammatory uh, problem, like rheumatoid arthritis, for instance, with absolutely no evidence of benefit here. Um, and smaller studies done prospectively and in mild disease, but still no evidence of, of a beneficial effect. Um, the side effects of hydroxychloroquine are not too severe, but some people really do have nausea and vomiting from chloroquine. Um, and the more serious issue is that of, of prolongation of the QT interval. And in so many of our patients with comorbidities, they're also taking other medications, which also cause QT prolongation. And so now you're combining drugs that both have the potential um, to synergistically cause uh, an arrhythmia there have not been problematic arrhythmias when hydroxychloroquine has been used alone, uh, say that for balance, um, but it really is recommended that people be monitored. And if lots of hydroxychloroquine is getting prescribed in the outpatient setting, it's really unclear that this monitoring is going on. And then uh, I wanna say a word about azithromycin, which has been so frequently used together with hydroxychloroquine. It is an antibacterial, not an antiviral, but it's being given here as an immunomodulator, immunomodulator uh, because it has an anti-inflammatory effect. It too can prolong the QT interval. So that's a potential problem. 
And besides everything else, we do worry about antibiotic stewardship. And there's no evidence that giving someone an antimicrobial when they simply have a viral pneumonia is, is going to help them. And you are now going to have them be colonized with uh, organisms that have potential to be uh, resistant to azithromycin so that the drug won't be available useful to them should they actually need it down the line. And finally, there's the risk of antibiotic associated diarrhea, including uh, with Clostridioides difficile, which has been really a plague for a lot of our hospitalized inpatients is a real infection control problem. So there are many, many reasons um, compounding here to uh, avoid giving these prescription medications for which no clear benefit has been demonstrated, Jan. Okay, great. That's that's a great overview. So hydroxychloroquine and azithro are not things we would recommend. Um, there's been another prescription drug that's been of interest, um, ivermectin. So what about ivermectin? There's some interesting data about that. So there's a drug that I actually have um, experience with using, Jan, but in a very, very different setting. This is um, used to treat parasitic diseases, and it has a, an excellent safety profile. Where I've used it most commonly is in uh, rural areas in, in low-income countries, um, places like Ethiopia and Haiti, uh, where it's used to treat scabies and lice, refractory lice and scabies. So it is given on a weight basis and really does have a good safety profile. Now, the interest here with COVID-19 is that there is in vitro activity against certain viruses, including some in vitro activity against SARS-CoV-2, but there is no indication, there is no indication um, for, for giving it in, in a viral infection. Now, there was a retrospective study done in four Florida hospitals where a single dose of just 200 micrograms was given, and then it was repeated at seven days if people were still in the hospital. And what this showed was uh, lower morbidity in the ivermectin group, especially in those with severe pulmonary disease and lower mortality rates. Well, I think that's very interesting uh, and certainly promising for uh, further study. The fact that it's a single dose and a really excellent safety profile. So that seems to be uh, very promising. And then there's, an, there's an, another over-the-counter medicine to consider, to, to consider and that's famotidine. Uh, some studies early in the pandemic were promising, and as we know, uh, famotidine is a histamine 2 receptor antagonist for relief of heartburn due to acid indigestion. And although we don't know the mechanism in, uh, that might help in COVID-19 for sure, a potential mechanism is the prevention of histamine release that may moduli modulate a cytokine storm in the hyperinflammatory phase of severe COVID-19. Um, there's been a more recent study, uh, it was a retrospective study, who showed that those who received famotidine in the hospital, most received it at a dose of 20 milligrams da daily, had a lower mortality rate and combined uh, death intubation rate than those who did not receive it. So, um, so that's promising too, I think, and it's certainly well tolerated and a good safety profile. Um, there's other uh, over-the-counter medicines that are discussed, uh, such as aspirin. So what are your thoughts about aspirin? Well, that's a really interesting one. We have heard and read about and treated many thrombotic uh, 
complications of COVID-19 and very severe ones. Um, and so it'd be great if we could uh, protect people from this complication early on. We are still lacking in information though about whether this is going to be effective. There is one retrospective study showing that patients who were given aspirin within 24 hours of admission or seven days prior to admission for COVID-19, if people were being admitted for COVID-19 and either within 24 hours of their admission or seven days prior, if they had gotten aspirin, um, these people had a decreased risk of being admitted to the ICU, requiring intubation and a decreased risk of mortality. And there were no adverse major bleeding episodes noted and um, no major thrombosis. So this is an area that is very important for ongoing study. We do wanna have people avoid aspirin in children because of the risk of RISE syndrome. And I just wanna stress again that this is a, a very exciting area for potential outpatient intervention for which we do not currently have prospective data. Yes, and I think there are studies ongoing, so we'll be very interested to see that. We certainly have to think about the bleeding risk uh, you know, when using aspirin, but uh, definitely something to consider and to look forward to in terms of future data. And then there's one that's been very surprising to me, this very recent study of fluvoxamine, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor used for obsessive compulsive disorder, showed a benefit in outpatient COVID. It turns out that a possible immune modulating mechanism for the hyperinflammatory response in COVID is sigma-1 receptor agonism. And this SSRI, fluvoxamine, uh, is a strong sigma-1 receptor agonist. And so this was a double-blind randomized clinical trial that showed decreased clinical deterioration in adult outpatients with COVID-19. No patients in the fluvoxamine group showed clinical deterioration compared to 8.3% in the placebo group. It's an oral drug with a good safety profile and low cost. Of course, this is a preliminary study and it's evidence for further clinical trials, but I think really interesting. And the other interesting thing about this study, it was totally contactless. Patients were recruited virtually, they got their meds and supplies delivered to them and they were monitored virtually. And so I think that that uh, in itself is an impressive and a good model for future outpatient studies of COVID. Um, and talking about future studies, what about investigational or oral antivirals? Is there anything on the horizon that we might see in the US that could be taken orally that has antiviral effect? Boy, we sure need something like that. Um, favipiravir, <clears throat> favipiravir is an oral antiviral that can inhibit RNA polymerase. It's been approved in a number of countries outside of the US and it has a very broad spectrum of antiviral activity. In fact, there, it's got activity against influenza, West Nile, yellow fever, Lassa, and Ebola viruses. Um, and early studies show that it could show some benefit in mild to moderate cases of SARS-CoV-2 if given early. We don't have access to it here, but there are clinical trials ongoing to see if there's true efficacy against COVID-19. Yes, and probably one of the things to remember would be that it would have to be given early. We've certainly learned that with remdesivir, that it needs to be given early to have the best effect. 
So it seems that there are some supplements and medications that have a good safety profile that may be worth using, some to avoid that have showed no benefit and have some side effects. Uh, and there are several of these that are uh, in ongoing clinical trials. Um, but as the patient is at home um, and using some of these principles, what should we tell patients at home to watch for? Um, that could mean they need to present for Well, patients at home need to watch for shortness of breath, first and foremost. That's the most important thing. If they're having trouble finishing their sentences, if they can't catch their breath, um, and, and if they have a pulse ox, they should be looking for an oxygen saturation better than 94% when they're at rest. We also can teach people that getting up and walking around with the pulse oximeter on their finger is helpful. And what they wanna watch for there is to make sure that they're not desaturating into the 85% range when they walk around. If they don't have a pulse ox, uh, we wanna warn people about the problem of persistent shortness of breath, persistent fever. That one gets to be dicey because I myself, and I'm sure you, Jan, have taken calls from people that are six or seven days into their course. It seems like an uncomplicated course. They don't seem to have a lot of comorbidities, and yet they're still reporting high fevers. And that's really an opportunity for good communication uh, between a good primary care doctor, a healer, and the person that they're trying to counsel. Um, but it is something that worries patients and probably should prompt a caregiver to ask additional questions to make sure that there aren't infectious complications uh, or comorbidities that have not been identified yet. Um, but beyond that, a decrease in your mental status uh, and a significant decrease in blood pressure. And by that, I would suggest a systolic blood pressure of less than 100 millimeters would be a significant um, decrease in blood pressure. Okay, great. That's, that's all good advice and good reminders to tell people what to watch for. So Dr. Bergeron, thank you for this conversation and your thoughts about outpatient therapy. We are seeing a surge of cases now locally, as you know, and certainly around the country. So outpatient management remains an important issue. It looks like the next major development will be the availability of vaccines, which is very exciting. So join us next time as we talk to Dr. Barbara Taylor, Associate Professor of Medicine Infectious Diseases here at UT Health, as we talk about vaccines. Thank you.